So without any further ado, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're starting a brand new series today called Heart for the House. Look at the person next to you say, Heart for the House. Talking about the heart for the house. I am, I'm really, really excited about this. I get to preach this weekend and next weekend and lay the foundations of what Heart for the House is. And, uh, and we'll share a little bit more of what that looks like. But we're going to kind of start in First Peter. This is going to be our foundation verse for really the series uh, is this part of this chapter. It's First Peter chapter 2. And uh, we're going to throw it on the screen. And we're going to read this together. If you read it with me. Go ahead, Paige. You can throw it up there. And we'll have everyone read it. Why don't we read it on the screen together? You can come and join in with me. It says this. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a what? Spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race come on a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the what? The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, everybody say, but now. But now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. Come on, that's a good verse. That's a good verse. Father, we love you. We thank you. Open up this word to us right now. Open up this whole series. God, may it be revelation to us. But God, I pray more than anything that we would apply the things that we learn today. I pray that we would see Jesus, fall in love with Jesus. I pray that we would leave this place more in awe of who he is. Our affection stirred more for him than ever before. We love you in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. All right, I want to do something fun to start off this series. I want to do a survey. We're going to survey the crowd today, and I'm asking for honest participation as we do this survey. And I want to kind of find out a little bit of where we are as a church and how we got together as a church. So I'm going to ask some questions. And if the question applies to you, then I just want you just to raise your hand and I'll tell you to put it down. Okay. Y'all ready? All right. So here it goes. I've got a couple questions. First question is this. How many of you did not grow up in a Christian home? Raise your hand. Did not grow up in a Christian home. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Put your hand down. How many of you grew up in a Christian home, but maybe for a time you ran from God, parted it up, did what you wanted to do, but eventually came back to the faith and you are now in the faith? How many that is you? Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. Next question. How many of you came to know Jesus before your 20th birthday? Before your 20th birthday. 
Wow. How many of you came to know Jesus um, in your 20s? In your 20s? 30s? 40s? 50s? That's far enough. All right. How many of you, your parents are still happily married? Raise your hand. How many of you, your parents are not happily married, they are divorced? Raise your hand. How many of you, your parents are still together, but they're not happy? (laughs) Don't, right? Like, Pastor Josh, my parents are here. It's terrible. All right, let's find out this. How many of you have a college education? How many of you do not? Whew, I feel good. (laughs) I'm in the right place. All right. How many of you, it's getting a little more honest, how many of you have a past that has drugs or alcohol in it? Come on. Wow. All right. How many of you have some form of abuse in your background? Some form of abuse. Okay. All right. Wow. Now, how many of you are not from the South originally? You're not from the South, but you knew that the best things were in the South, so you hurried up and got here as fast as you could. Awesome, awesome. Well, the reason I, I did this survey was for a couple of things. There is a, there is a common myth that says that, that for, in order for you to be a Christian, there is a certain type of person that becomes a Christian. There are certain types of people that you can, in a sense, stereotype that these are the type of people that become Christians, they don't think, and, you know, and they're all from the South, or they're all, they're all in their 20s, and they're all, and, and the thing that I love about just what we just did was that we just saw that that's not the case. We saw people from the show of hands that were raised in Christian homes. We saw a lot that were not raised from Christian homes. We saw some that have college degrees. We saw a lot that do not have college degrees. So what we see within this survey is the idea that when God is saving people, he's not saving a specific type of person. He's not going after a certain type of people. God is so adamant about reaching all people. He wants to see all people come to know him. And when he is building something, he is building all different types and kinds of people. And that's the greatest news ever. And today we are going to look into 1 Peter because we're going to see this idea of what God is building. We're starting a new series today called Heart for the House. When we talk about the house, we're talking about the church. We're talking about the church. When you read about the house or the household when it comes to the New Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, a lot of times Jesus is referring to the church. He is building a house. In this it said he is building a spiritual house. And so over for the next six weeks, all the way up to November 11th, we're going to be in this series called A Heart for the House. And we're going to share a couple of things. First off, what we want to do is today I want to lay down the foundations that before we can have a heart for God's house, we have to go and look and see what kind of heart God has for his own house. What is God building? Before we start building anything, 
I think it would be very important that we all look at what God is building. Wouldn't y'all think? Don't you want to build what God's building? I want to go off of his blueprints and what he's passionate about. So today we're going to find out what he's extremely passionate about. What is God so passionate about? Next week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to share about what it looks like for our church. What is our church passionate about? What does this idea of the house look like for our Savior's church, Jennings and Eunice and beyond? What does it look like for us? And then for the next four weeks after that, we're going to actually talk through the practical ways of how we flesh out having a heart for the house. What does it look like to be a person who has a heart for the house? What are the characteristics of that type of person? So that's what we're going to be going into for the next six weeks. But today I feel is extremely important because we have to start with the fact of what does God say about his house? So if you have your notes with you, we're going to start off right now with number one, and that is that Jesus is building his house. Jesus is building his house. Now, in our society and in our culture, there is an overwhelming sense of individualism. Everybody wants to be individuals. Everybody wants to be their own person. And almost to the degree, have you seen this amongst people where they want to be individuals so much that there's a lot of other people that want to be individuals and they all look exactly the same? Have y'all seen this before? Like, I'm just trying to be my own self. Well, why do you look exactly like him? (laughs) Y'all are exactly the same. And in our desire to want to be individuals, this thing creeps into our hearts and into our lives that we don't really need people. We don't really need anything outside of what we have in ourselves. We are good. I'm good within myself. If it's me and Jesus, we're good. We're fine. But when you go and you read throughout Scripture, that cannot be more contrary to what God says. God is building his house. From the very beginning of time, God created Adam. He created the birds and the monkeys and the seas, and he spoke things into existence. And every time he would do that, he would say, it is what? Come on, say it with me. It was what? It was good. Creates a man. He goes, it's good. It's very good. And so he gives Adam the incredible privilege of naming these animals, which I just would love to have been there for that. I mean, you probably get to some, he's had to start with hippopotamus. Start with some big ones, you know, some huge ones. Naming them all, and then he just gets to like ant. I'm I'm tired. (laughs) Gnat. You know, fly. Oh, wow. And that's what it does. Okay. I would have thought they became more, but anyways. So he does all that, and within all of that, I'm sure he is still looking for like, okay, could this be my mate? I mean, the orangutan is kind of close. I don't know. (laughs) If we could shave a little hair off that monkey, I think we might be okay. And so we know that God looks at Adam, and he says something. And look in your notes. It says it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is what? What does he say? It's not good. What does it say that it's not good? Not good that man what? Should be alone. Come on. It says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So here's here's the big idea. You can have everything perfect in your life, but if you are alone, God says it's not good. You can have everything right in your life. Everything 
It's going well. But if you are alone, God says, that's not good. That's not good. Because God is building a house. You were designed for community. We were designed to be with people and to be in community. And this is how I know that we were designed for community because eternity shows that. Heaven is a reality of what God wants here on earth. Do you know that the Bible says that heaven, you know what it says? It, it, it calls it the what? The host of heaven. It does not say the individuals of heaven. It says what? It says the, the host of heaven. And my thought is that if heaven is about us not being as individuals, then maybe here on earth God's desire is not for us just to be individuals. And so I wrote this idea down. If God's ultimate purpose was for us to live individually, then eternity would reflect that. But heaven, essentially, is returning back to what God intended in Genesis 1. What is Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is Adam and Eve together having babies. God's wanting them to flourish, multiply. God walking with them. They're in great relationship with God. That is Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get into it just everything falls to pieces after that. But the beginning of it, the beginning of God's creation was that we would be in community and in relationship very close with God, but then also with others, with his wife, and then that they would have children, and they would have children, that they would multiply. So heaven is a returning back to what Genesis 1 is. Are y'all with me here? And so when we look to heaven and we see this, it's paradise restored. So here's the question. Then what is the church? The church should be heaven on earth. Right? Isn't that our prayer? God, your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven on earth. Our desire here as a church, as the body, because Jesus is building a church, he's building a people, that when people look at us, that they would see a glimpse of heaven. Right? That they would see a glimpse of All different types of people coming together, surrounded around to worship one God, to magnify and glorify one God, to put all of our attention and affections, and that he becomes our greatest treasure. That is what heaven is, that we get to party together around Jesus. And so the church should be partying together around Jesus. We get to have fun. We get to to encourage one another. We get to bear one another's burdens You read in the New Testament that it says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then in other places it says that after Jesus ascended into heaven, that in order for you to see Jesus, it said that you saw how the disciples loved one another. And when the disciples loved one another, it said that people saw Jesus. They saw who he was. So Jesus is building his house. He is desiring to build his house here in this church. And we see that by seeing the vast variety and differences within this house. People from Welsh, people from Lake Arthur, people from Jennings, people from Iota, people from all over the place. Poor, rich, smart, not. If it applies, it applies. All different hosts of occupations and backgrounds. 
And what is it? Jesus, what does he do? He brings them together. Most of us would have no commonality to have friendship with each other outside of Jesus, right? Most of us. But because of this house, because of what God is building, because he's building a house, it brings us together. And then we get to reflect the image of Jesus to this city, to the lost, and to beyond that. And so, the problem with this is, though, is that God never intended the church to be a place where you slip in, listen to a message, and hurry up and slip out. Right? Because if God's building a house, a house is not a place that you just come and hurry up and visit and hurry up and leave. A house is a place that you reside in. A house is a place that you do relationship with. A house is a place where there's fighting and good fighting. Not only just fighting with each other, but fighting for each other. A house is something that's way different. Because I'll, I'll, I'll be really, really honest with you. If, if your desire is just to come in and slip in and listen to a message and hurry up and slip out, you might as well just get me on DVD or the internet. Save the gas. Save the gas. Right? I mean, let's just watch preachers on TV. If the church was just the fact of just me having a relationship with God, then I could do that in my lazy boy in my underwear. Sorry for the mental picture. I apologize. But that's not the church. The church is a house. The church is a group of people that God is bringing together that we can come and we can sit and we can hear the word of God preached. But then we can also look at each other and go, I know you're, I can see that you're struggling. I see that you're having a hard week. Man, how can I encourage you? How can I help you? How can I be there for you? That is the church. God is building a people that are so committed not only to Christ, but are committed to each other. He's building a house. He's building a house. Look what it says in 1 Peter. Let's, let's look at that verse, 1 Peter 2, 5. And look what he says, because it's weird that he, he gives this description of us in this way. He says what? He says, you yourselves are like what? What's the example that he gives? A what? A living stone. You yourselves are like living stones. And what about these living stones? They are being built up as a spiritual house. I don't know about y'all, but I would think, I would much rather be a different analogy. You are a roaring lion seeking to devour the enemy. You are a stampede of elephants taking ground. All of, you know, like, you are a living stone. Hmm. I don't know if y'all have seen stones lately. Not the liveliest of bunches. Nobody walks out and goes, hey, a stone. Well, my seven-year-old does, and my four-year-old collects them. Don't know why. I have bricks and stones in my backyard that are just accumulated. But God has a purpose for everything that he puts in the word, and so why in the world would he call us living stones? And the, the thing that I see about the living stone is a stone individually is nothing other than just a doorstop. But when you put these stones together, 
it can become one of the most beautiful homes you've ever seen. My house is a brick house. It's made of stone. And it's been brick on brick on brick on brick on brick on brick. And it creates a home that our family lives in. Now you take one brick and you put it aside and you put it in the grass. Nobody passes that brick and goes, Look at that brick. It's a beautiful stone. Nobody does that. It's not until congregates with other bricks and then it gets put into a pattern that people go, ah, this is a beautiful house, right? It's a beautiful house. And so Jesus comes and through the inspiration of Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus takes very serious about the church. He's very serious. He's very serious about our lives interconnecting because Jesus has a purpose and he has a plan. And and now here's what I want you all to understand because most churches are now becoming more and more of a museum. You ever been to a museum? I really love actually going to a museum. I love learning. I love, now I can't bring my kids with me anymore because they just, they're like, Dad, are you serious? Like, What's this? As I've grown older, I've grown to appreciate things more. Like to look at architecture, you're like, oh, wow. You know, my seven-year-old's like, what are we doing? What are we staying here for? Like, that, that's beautiful. You don't see it? No. Where's my Legos? Okay. No, there's no appreciation for that. But I love, I like going to museums. I like going to those places and looking at artifacts and all that. The sad thing is, though, is that many churches become like that where you like to go and you like to sit and you like to listen to the orator share about the history of that place and how awesome it used to be and all the things that that it was. And you get to look at all the beautiful art. Don't you dare touch. Don't you dare touch it. But you can look at it and you can see what it was. But we are not a museum. We are a movement. A museum is a place that you go sit, you listen, and you watch, and you leave. A movement is something that you join, you sacrifice, and you advance. And we are a church that is living. It's a living stone. It's not a dead stone. It's a living stone. It says that this living stone, if these living stones are being built together, we are creating a movement. This church is a movement. I love the fact of being a part of a church that is constantly going, what else can we do? Where else can we go? Who else can we reach? Where else can we? We're constantly asking ourselves not that, okay, good, I'm here, I'm great, all's well. Because here's what I want you to understand. You are here probably because somebody got out of their comfort zone to reach you. Right? Somebody risked it. Somebody took the step and said, this may be awkward, but hey, come to church with me. Or hey, I want to share Jesus with you. Or hey, somebody got into your life and you are where you are today because someone invested in you. Somebody came and was building bricks on top of you. And so for us, we are a movement. We are constantly moving. We are something we are a part of. It's not something we attend. It's something we participate in. It's not something we spectate. It's something we join in. We say, this is it. I am all in. I'm all in. And so Jesus is building his house. Number two, Jesus loves his house. Jesus loves his house. House. He loves his house. I hear people say this all the time, and it drives me crazy. They say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. 
I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm going to forewarn you right now. If you get between Jesus and his bride, it will not go well with you. The Bible talks about how the church is his bride. That one day when Jesus returns, that he will present his bride to him, spotless and pure, that we are his bride. And I'm telling you, if you bash his bride, you are in for it. Listen, you can make fun of me all you want. I have thick shoulders, thick skin. You talk about my wife, I'm coming after you. All right, this 155-pound frame will bow up like you've never seen. And especially if you touch my children. And so for us, we have to understand that his house is his greatest love. It's his greatest love. Jesus absolutely loves his bride. He loves his church. And how do we know that he loves his church? Well, truth is, he gave his life for it. Right? He shed his blood for it. He paid the most excruciating pain on a cross for the church, for his bride, for her. He paid for that. And the great thing about all of this, though, is that the church will constantly go on. It's not because the church in itself is powerful. It's not because the church is extremely talented. It's because Jesus loves it. Can I just tell you this? From ancient years, people have tried to stop the church. They have done everything that they can to persecute the church, to kill Christians, to stop them, and it is constantly growing and advancing constantly. Constantly. Pastors will come and go. Worship leaders will come and go. Buildings will come and go. But the house is not the building, and the house is not the pastor, and the house is not... The house is the church. It's the people of God. Now, all of these things are important, and they help make up the church, but the church is not centered on those things. Are y'all with me here? So if this building was to get torn away, we would still have a church. We would still be the church, and this church would continue. When the Roman people would come in, and they would just destroy things, and they would kill people, they thought, yes, here we go. They will no longer be able to do what they do. Somehow, the church continued to advance in other areas. Persecution that came into those towns just made the church spread out in all other places. Because Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. And if he loves his church, then he's going to do everything he can to protect it. Let's look at Matthew 16, 18. What does Matthew 16, 18 say? It says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will what? What does it say? What is he going to build? I'm going to build my my church. That's right. I'm going to build my church, and the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the church is going to remain forever and ever because Jesus has a heart for his house. Nobody has a heart for this house more than Jesus does. He's sacrificed more than anybody else has. He's given more than anybody else has. He's done more for this church than anybody else has. He's loved this church more than anybody else has. Jesus absolutely has a heart for his house. And then number three is this. Jesus is the heart of this house. Jesus is the heart of this house. 
Now let's go back to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 6. It says this. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. And now he's going to give a very specific type of stone. He says a cornerstone. If you have that, if your Bible is open there, I want you to highlight that. It's a cornerstone. It says it's a cornerstone chosen and precious. Those are two key things as well. Cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's the question that I have is, what makes a church a real community? Because I don't know if y'all know, but the word community is like a buzzword now. Everybody's got community. You got community country clubs. You got community sewing clubs. You got community. Every, everybody uses community. Community coffee. Commu- everything's community. Everybody talks about community, wants community. This idea that we just gather together. And most people view actual community as just the fact of gathering together and having, doing life together. And in a sense, that is community. But when we read scripture, God doesn't just talk about community. He talks about biblical community. What is biblical community? Because the truth is, we could all get around and go and just hang out together. But that does, does it make it biblical? Because people are, do you know that right now, people are doing community all across this city? Do you understand that? Sunday... Saints game, which I don't know if they're playing today, but LSU, whatever. People gather around in community to celebrate something. They do life together. They eat together. So what makes our community real community? What makes it different from all other communities? Because there is a difference. Now, I love sports. I, I, I love playing them. I love watching them. And I do know a couple things about sports And that is that if you're going to build a team and you want it to be a championship team, a great team, this is what you're going to do. You are going to find specific players that have specific strengths and you're going to recruit those players and then you're going to do everything that you can to tailor your game to their specific strengths. So uh, if you highlight, uh, if you recruit a, a, a high school quarterback that is just a, absolutely amazing and he comes over to your team, you're not putting him as a safety. He's not going to be a nose tackle. He will be a quarterback. That's what he will do. That's why you got him. His strength is to be a quarterback. And so as a great team, as you're building great teams, you want to find out what their greatest strengths are and then you want to accentuate those. You want to make those great. Well, Here's the thing. We only got one strength in this church. And it's not our buildings and it's not the lights. We only got one strength in this church. And it's not any, it's not any programs that we do. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And that's all we got. If we don't have Jesus, we don't got nothing. Excuse my bad grammar. But we ain't got nothing. Nothing. Jesus is all we got. He is our strength. He is the one strength that we have. And, and I, I love the fact that I get to come up here and I get to preach and I get to proclaim how awesome Jesus is. As you read in Second Peter, that that's what we come together to do, to proclaim the excellencies of the glory of who God is. That I get to come up here and I get to preach Jesus. And people come up and go, that was a great message. And I go, I'm just preaching the same thing. Jesus is awesome. 
Jesus is worthy of you giving your life to, if you give your life to him, I promise you, you will have the greatest life you have ever lived. It will be hard, but there's no greater place to put your trust and hope in Jesus. And I just preach that every week. That's all we do. We just continue to preach the gospel of who Jesus is and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And people get to come and we congregate around one person, Jesus, and his sinless life and the death that he died. And it's Jesus. Jesus is all we got. Can I get an amen on that? He's all that we got. He's everything that we have. Everything that we preach is in him. And he is the pinnacle of scripture. If you go from Old Testament all the way to New Testament, Old Testament is pointing to a savior, to a redeemer, who is Jesus. New Testament shows up and there's a baby that's born from a virgin. Is that crazy or not? How did you have this baby? Uh, Holy Spirit. Okay, I've heard that one before. And then we see this man, he lives this life, and he dies this death. And all of the scripture is pointing to this one man. We have one hero. His name is Jesus. We preach him. We talk about him. And, I, I, and I'm going to continually say this and, and megaphone this out. You don't need principles, and you don't just need a plan, and you don't just need a program, and you don't need, you need a person. You need Jesus. If you're struggling in your marriage, guess what you need? Jesus, if you're having a financial burden and things are hard, you need Jesus. You need Jesus to help you. If you need guidance, you need Jesus. If you need comfort, you need Jesus. If you need a healing, you need Jesus. If you have addictions you cannot get over, you need Jesus. He's all we got. Now, Jesus will give you plans, and Jesus will give you wisdom, and Jesus will give you counsel, and Jesus will give you these things, but... I hate to see that people run to plans and things before they run to Jesus. Jesus is first. Jesus is foremost. And I love what this says. Put, put that verse back up. It says that he is a cornerstone. He is a cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was the first stone. It was the first stone. The cornerstone was this massive piece of stone that was laid first, and it was actually laid Believe it or not, in the corner. And it was used to want everything to build off of it, but it was also the aligning stone. Everything aligned according to the cornerstone. So however that cornerstone was set, every other wall was off of that cornerstone. If it was off, every other wall was off. It was set to whatever that cornerstone was set, it was set to that. The Bible says, according to this, that the cornerstone is who? Come on, let's start. If all else fails, just say Jesus. You'll probably get it right. <laughs> Can you see a repeating theme here? <laughs> so the cornerstone is Jesus. If we will initialize, if we will start off our life, throw away every other foundation, everything else we built our life on, everything that has failed us, and everything that we thought was going to be fulfillment, we just get rid of all that and we say, Jesus, you will be the cornerstone. And Jesus saves you. And he comes in and he initializes your faith. The thing I love about this is he's not only the cornerstone, but he's also the capstone. And the capstone was the finishing stone. So last week I preached a message out of Hebrews 12 that says that Jesus, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we said that Jesus is not only the one who saves you, but he's also the one who does the perfecting. 
and how we have the tendency to understand that Jesus is saving us, but we want to do the perfecting. But we see also, even in this building of this house that he's building, he is the cornerstone of that house, but he also is the capstone of the house, which is the finishing stone, which is the very last stone. So what this is saying is that Jesus is the beginning and he's the He's the end. He's the alpha and he's the omega. He starts it and he finishes it. Philippians 1, 6, that he begins a good work and that he's going to see it to completion. That what Jesus is doing in this church, and listen to me. Pastor Bubba was sent here 12 years ago to start our Savior's church, but it wasn't, he wasn't the starting. Guess who started it? Jesus. That's exactly right. Jesus began it. And he uses people to fulfill his purposes. And so over the 12 years, guess who's been building it? Yet again, I'm telling you, just say his name. You're going to get it right. Jesus has been building his church because he's been more passionate about this church than any of us. So he is the cornerstone, but he is also the capstone. So Jesus is essentially at the heart of this house. So here's the question, because this is, I think, where it starts getting applicable to our lives. How do we keep Jesus the cornerstone? It's in the verse. Throw the verse up for me, please. It says, a cornerstone chosen and what? Precious. precious. Every time I think of precious, I think of one movie. Y'all know where I'm going? precious I the way we keep Jesus the cornerstone of not only this house but of our lives is we answer this one question is Jesus precious something that is precious is something that you treasure it's something that you 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 keep in a sacred place it is something that you have it it carries so much weight and how many know that something that's precious doesn't mean that it costs a lot how many have something that's precious that's maybe just old or maybe you have something that's precious because like you birthed them (laughs) or maybe it's precious because you're married to them precious doesn't necessarily mean cost precious is something that's near and dear to your heart And the thing that I found is that the time that people don't allow Jesus to be the cornerstone or the capstone is when they don't keep Jesus as precious. He's common now. And you know this when you start talking with people about what they're going through and they start adding Jesus in like he's another ingredient to something else that they're doing. Like, yeah, I'm trying to be good and man, I'm just, just trying to work on my marriage and man, I'm going to church and I'm... What they're telling me is, is that they're trying to work all this stuff out and hopefully by throwing Jesus in the mix somewhere that Jesus would see this and go, oh, okay. Oh, I saw you attended this Sunday. You're good. Don't worry about it. I got you. Something that's precious is not something we check off a list. Something that's precious is something we put our full hope and faith and love and affection towards. Y'all with me? So you need to ask the question, is Jesus precious to you? 
Is Jesus just as precious to you as other things that you view as precious? Some of you view money as extremely precious to you. So when it leaves, you're crushed. You know why? Because it was precious. We need to constantly be coming back to a place of saying, Jesus, you are, you are precious. You are more than enough. His presence is worth more than silver and gold. He is the greatest treasure on the face of this earth. And let me tell you what my job as a pastor here in this house, this is what my job is on a Sunday. You know what my job is? My job is for you, after you hear the preaching of the word that comes out of my mouth, that you leave this place going, Jesus, you are more precious than ever. That's my job. My job is to preach and proclaim the word and the Holy Spirit comes and he speaks and he uses the word to begin to do this in your heart and to say, Jesus, you are. You're more than enough. You're all that I need. I've, I've, I've given more to other things than to you and it brings us to a place of dependence on Christ. So I want to wrap it up with kind of three thoughts. Because um, there's three things that happen in a community when Jesus is the heart of the house. There's three things that happen. Okay, so I want you to write these down and I want you to really listen in intently because I think this is where we need to really um, ask ourselves some questions. So the first off is this. When Jesus is the heart of the house, the first thing that happens in our community is we have a sincere community. We have a sincere community. What this means is that the Bible says that he who freely receives, freely what? Come on, say that with me. He freely gives. And to have a sincere community means this. We all understand that we are broke without Jesus. We all understand we are nothing but dust without Jesus. We all understand that apart from Jesus, we would be on the streets. We would be whatever, strung out on whatever. We would be in a really, really bad place if it wasn't for Jesus. So when people walk into this house broken and hurting, we have a sincere community. You know why? Because we relate. We go, I, under- I totally understand where you're at. We don't look down on people. We bring them close and say, I totally understand. And apart from Jesus, this is what I would be doing. Or we say, because of Jesus, this is what he's done for me. And guess what? That same Jesus, he can do it for you. A sincere community is a place where we come and we can be authentic and transparent. If not for the grace of God, you and I would be a mess. Can I get an amen on that? If it's not from the grace of God, we would be a mess. We and I are a community of fake religious people who think we got it all together. We're not that. We are people who fail and yet look to Jesus. He is our hope. Number two, we become a sticky community. We become a sticky community. And what I mean by that is it's easy to come in, hard to go out. Easy to come in, hard to go out. A lot of churches, it's hard to get in, and it's easy to get out. Our church, we want easy to come in, welcome. We welcome you with open arms. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, come, come, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you, come, just come, come on. Come see me. The disciples, when they were going to their buddies and saying, listen, just come. 
Come see Jesus. Come meet Jesus. Come hear him speak. I promise you, you're going to fall in love with him just like I did. So come. So a sticky community is a place where the invitation is open to all. This harvest hoedown that we're doing. It's just an invitation to say, come. Come be with us. Come join us. Come have some fun with us. Come line dance with me. Come eat some chili with me. Come be a part of our family. Come see what this is about. And in that, my prayer is this, is that as you come and you become a part of God's house and you become a part of God's family, it's hard to leave. Now, we send people, but ultimately it's hard to leave. You know it's always easy? The easy churches to leave are the ones that you're not connected to. The more you're connected to it, you're like, this just breaks my heart. It's hard. We want to be a sticky church, a place where people come and they get stick and they... they they get settled in and they, they get grounded in to the house. And not only to the house, but definitely to Jesus. And then number three, last one is this. We have a sacred community. And this is what I mean by sacred community. And I'll wrap it up with this. Um, we have a sincere community, a sticky community, a sacred community. A sacred community, what I mean by that is that it's worthy of our devotion. It's worthy of our sacrifice. We belong to a house that Jesus has shed his blood for. He he has given everything to show you and I that he absolutely loves us and that he's restoring us and reconciling us. Here's the question then. Why would we not respond the same way? Why would we not respond with, God, you've freely given me grace. You have freely given me forgiveness. You have freely given me blessings. You have poured out every spiritual blessings, according to Ephesians 1, on me. So why would I not, in return, say, God, you have all of me. Anything you want is yours. Everything that I have is yours. Any way that I can impact the kingdom and help build this house with you, I want to be a part of it. November 11th, we do this every year. We have a thing we call the miracle offering where we come as a church. And we commit as a church to help build the house financially. To say we are all in on what God's doing here. And we send off money like crazy to missions in this time. And we go and we just do incredible things in our community through this. And we come together and we say, we want to see God do a miracle in our hearts. We want to see God do a miracle in this church. We want to see God do a miracle in this city. We want to see God stretch our reach and impact beyond everything that we do. And I'm going to tell you, on November 11th, if I get the chance to preach, I will have no holds bars when it comes to asking you to devote everything to this house. You know why? Because this house has been devoted everything to you. To build you. To reach you. To see you grow. There, there is nothing that we have been more committed to than to see the people in our church grow and love God, love Jesus, love others. And we're going to ask you to do the same thing. To return that and say, you know what? Just as Christ has done in me, I'm going to return. Because this is a sacred community. It's a place of healing and hope and health. It's a place where my family gets touched. Come on, how many, does not, how many do not want your kids to grow up and love the Lord just more, even more passionate than you do? Isn't that, don't we all want that? 
And I'm going to tell you something, and I've learned this, and we'll probably touch on this over the next six weeks, though. I've learned that as my love and affection for the house grows, my children's affection for the house grows. I hear of so many pastors' kids who hate the house. They hate church because they view church as a place that took their daddy. But I've said, no, 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 not in my house. My kids will grow up and love the house because they're going to serve with me and they're going to be a part of the house. They're not going to be an isolated thing. They're going to be a part of the house just as much as I'm a part of the house. We're going to do this thing together. And I'm going to tell you right now, if your kids hate going to church, I'm going to tell you where they get it from. I don't even have to answer the question. You know where they get it from. But guess what? If your kids love going to the house, I'm going to tell you where they get it from. You. You. They love the house because you love the house. So as a church, we want to be committed. We want to have a heart for this house. But today, I want you to understand this. We have a heart for God's house because God's heart is all in his house. He loves his house. He builds his house. And God is continually building. Over the course of the next year, we're going to have more and more people join this body. More and more people are going to get saved. More and more families are going to get restored. And this house is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But within that, within that, we want God to build your house. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, we want God to build your house. Amen? amen. Can you stand with me? We're going to finish. Father, we love you. Mm. Father, this, this, this church that's here is a house that you are building. I love, God, looking across this room and seeing the diversity of people that you have brought here. It is not by accident that these people are here. Each one is here on purpose and for a reason because you have a great plan for this house. God, as I look around and see the people that you're bringing, I get excited because I know that the people that you're bringing around here are not just for them to just come and soak up and listen and leave, but there have been people that you have joined here because there's something deep within them that you have designed them and purposed them to use for your kingdom and for your house and to bless other people in this area and in this house. God, today we, we make a commitment to stand with you and, and to, to be committed to what you're committed to. And God, if there has been areas of our, of our heart and our lives where we have had disdain towards the church, God, I know that the church is imperfect. I know people have been hurt by the church. I know there's things that have gone on that have given people a bad taste in their mouth towards the church. But God, this place is your place. This place is a place where your presence fills. And each person in here gets to walk out of this place and be a reflection of you. God, I pray, Lord, that you, over these next six weeks, would stir up inside of us a renewed passion for your house. We believe that the church is the hope of the world. That through the church, the gospel is proclaimed. That Jesus 
is manifested in neighborhoods and in workplaces that people here get to go and be Christ in those areas. And I pray, God, that you would bless them. I pray that your face would shine upon them. I pray that they would know you this week. We love you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.